Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the My Entertainment World podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Bedard, and I'm just here to do a little bit of an intro and set you up for the interview you're about to hear. What we have today for the podcast is a teaser or a sort of sample of what our nominee interview series is all about. So this is a series that we do every single year during our awards season. In between nominations in January and awards in April, we interview as many of the nominees as possible, close to 100 this year. And a couple, most of those interviews are going to be posted on the website, myentertainmentworld.ca, in print. They're all uh, sort of Q&A format printed uh, pieces. But one of the interviews this year, we decided we'd bring to you an audio form. We'd release it as a podcast because when we talked to this particular nominee, one, we talked for a very long time, and two, she was particularly fun and animated, and I just didn't think that the it would the tone would make the jump necessarily to uh, text. So here we have the audio version of Kat Letwin's interview that she did with me as part of the nominee interview series. Kat is an improviser, an actress in Toronto, and she's nominated this year as uh, the best actress nominee in the independent category for her performance in Kat Sandler's Late Night, where she played a, a young comedian, a sort of Amy Schumer type, who is replacing her idol on his late night show. Uh, and she's also nominated as part of the ensemble of Chasse Galerie, which was, uh, had its premiere at Soul Pepper this year after being plucked out of the storefront season and put onto a much bigger stage. So we talked to her about a couple different nominations that she has this year, some of her previous work. Um, Kat is a previous, or a previous winner. Uh, she won the Best Actress Award in 2014 and then went on to host the awards in 2015. So it's amazing to have her back in the mix this year for with two nominations again. And uh, yeah, we talked to her about all sorts of things and it got very in-depth about feminism in, in theater and in comedy and the ad campaign that made Jesus really work. I hope you enjoy it. It's, I think, a really fun interview. Make sure you check out the website, myentertainmentworld.ca. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at myentworld. And uh, enjoy the interview. Talk to you later, guys. <laughs> two years have been one hot minute after another let me tell you um i have been involved in a number of uh productions uh whether it's theater or comedy or uh, film and tv it's it's been a a pretty crazy busy time um i did a uh, production of dangerous liaisons um i think it's the only time anyone will ever be allowed to improvise in dangerous liaisons uh <laughs> Uh, Jacob Eman is a is a sweetheart. Uh, <laughs> what a what a kind soul he is. Uh, yeah, let's see. Uh, we had the uh, first go round of Shas Gallery at the storefront, which was an unexpected success. Like we thought when we were making it together, like you know, it'd be cool if we could do this maybe once more and get no money for it. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, I'll live in the dream. Uh, so that uh, that happened. Um, then. I formed a new uh, sketch and improv duo called Northwest Passage with my uh, lovely good friend Simon McCamus. And this past year we played uh, Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal Sketchfest. And it's uh, all new material uh, that I wrote and it had some really, really good responses to it. So uh, we're getting back in the game with that. We've actually got a couple shows coming up pretty soon. Um, I was on a 
like honestly like the worst TV show in the world. Uh, <laughs> really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you had just finished wrapping it when I spoke to you last. Yeah, it, and it premiered this year, and it's like, oh god, it's god awful. It's so but bad. did you know it was bad when you were making it? I, uh, you know, you have hope. <laughs> Because if you don't have hope, what do you have? <laughs> Sense. Sense is what you have. Um, you know, and it's funny, uh, because in that show, like, the, the talent both behind the camera and on camera was amazing. Like, some of the best comedians and writers in the city, like, Neil Hannah's on it, Darren McIntyre, Sammy Fareed, Liz Johnston, like, these crazy powerhouse talents. And then, uh, like, Pat Thornton was writing for it, and Carly Heffernan, and Amanda Brooke Perrin, and I, I highly respect all the work they do. But the problem is, you can put as much talent as you want around a bad idea, but it's still going to be a bad idea. Mm. Um, anyway, catch Almost Genius on uh, country music television. <laughs> uh, basically, if you have a TV, whenever you want, I suppose. Um, so, but that was, you know, it was also... Fun. Like it was, it was a good experience to have. Um, I also did an episode of The Amazing Gail Pyle on CBC Comedy, so that was created by uh, Morgan Waters, who is just uh, really, really smart, really funny, really weird guy. And the show itself is very smart and funny and weird and absurd. So I'm uh, in the first episode of the third season of that, and. Then I did a late night uh, with, uh, with sweet, sweet Kat Sandler and uh, Mike Lucy and all the other people who've been uh, nominated for this, <laughs> uh, which was great. And then um, the, the round of Shass Gallery at Soul Pepper and a bit of that overlapped. By the way, while we're recording this, uh, the wind is howling outside like thousands of angry banshees. Uh, and I, I just want to tell them, like, I'm sorry for what I did, Banshees. I don't know what it is, but I am so sorry. Um, so, yeah, in a nutshell, that's what it's been. Um, I've been improvising a whole ton. Uh, I've been writing a lot more. Um, and going forward, I'm uh, looking at doing a lot more collaborations with people I really like and respect. Um, uh, namely, uh, Cameron Wiley, who's a wonderful comedian, is now taking over co-hosting duties with me for Sing for Your Supper. Um, and yeah, like it's, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a cool, hot year and it's been a cool, hot two years. Um, what else? I don't know. I feel like I tried some new foods. Um, <laughs> any hits? Uh, I found like I really got into extremely spicy hot sauces and I feel like this has fundamentally changed not only my palate, but frankly how I see the world. And, uh, so, you know, as uh, Bill Murray and Caddyshack once said, so I got that going for me, <laughs> which is nice. As you mentioned, yeah. we're here to talk about Late Night. Oh, so you had worked with Theatre Brouhaha before. Yes. How did the process of developing Late Night compare to your past experiences? Um, it was wildly different uh, because there was money. Um, that changes things. And we uh, also were uh, creating a show in uh, conjunction with Zoomer Media. So now it was not only an issue of like putting up a fun play at storefront, um, RIP, and uh, it, it was about creating something that not only would work on stage, but would also work for the television. So how, how do you split the difference between those two worlds? What is it that you want to show to the uh, audience that is right there that have paid money for tickets? What is it that you want to communicate to people at home? Um, because of course the, the medium does change the message uh, quite, quite heavily. So writing-wise, that was interesting, and then uh, especially acting-wise. 
So the, the styles that you use for on camera versus in theater are so a um, little bit opposed to each other. I'm obviously more comfortable with theater acting, but um, with, with TV, how do you keep that subtlety? How do you stop from going too big for the cameras while also not burying your performance for the people who are watching you in the seats right around you? And luckily, the Zoomerplex was very intimate space as it was. So um, it's not like we had to, you know, reach the people in the, like, the third row of bleachers uh, 20,000 feet away or something. God, I don't think that kind of theater exists, actually. Never mind. Um, so that was fascinating. And then the process of developing itself, uh, when I did Retreat with Kat, um, we did a lot of uh, rewrites and character development on our feet, and we were also rehearsing in the uh, basement of the May Cafe, uh, which is this, like, windowless kind of damp space. <laughs> I, like, like... And no clocks anywhere, so it's just like a really low-budget casino just without the gambling. Um, and we would just, like, we had hours however long we wanted. I mean, we were still putting up a show in two weeks, but, you know, we would just, like, keep going. You know, we're, the, we're in our 20s. We're just like, yeah, we're not tired. It's fine. Let's take five minutes, eat some food out of a can, and let's get back to it. So there was a lot of sense of play and exploration and all that kind of stuff. Uh, with Late Night, because it had to be so uh, technically precise, we didn't really get that uh, experience with it. It was a lot of, like, the first week was all table work. So we're literally in this, like, little office space that Zoomer Media provided for us. Um, Kat's got her laptop hooked up to a TV so we can all see the changes. And we're going, like, line by line and joke by joke and and really figuring out the, the, the technical aspect of it. And... You know, I'm no stranger to a, a writer's room, um, uh, but I like my process to be on its feet. And I, um, you know, both uh, Nigel Downer, who was in the show, and I were both improvisers. So we like to, like, get up and use our bodies and just, like, shoot the shit and figure things out. Um, but that's just not how it was set up. Um, so it, it did feel like having to really hone my concentration skills and just and keep present and, and learn how to develop... A character and a story in a way that I'm not used to that's equally valid it's just something that I had never really had to do before so that was that was pretty fascinating um, of course as soon as he got on her feet I was just like oh yes here we go so great and uh, as some people may know the the play was originally uh, uh, the winner of the uh, fringe 24-hour playwriting contest I think that was also in 2014 I was a judge on that one. Oh. So, oh, there you go. Did that on purpose. Uh, yep, yep. I could play this role. Yeah, exactly. Actually, you know what? There was a little bit of that in it. Because um, when they submit um, plays to the 24-hour playwriting contest, there's no name on it. There's no gender. So it's just totally blind submissions, which is like, mm, primo, great way to do it. And I had a feeling Kat had submitted something. There, it was like down between like two scripts where I'm like, either of these could be hers. And it was Late Night, and then it was, um, it was another one, and I, I'm afraid I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was like very funny, very well written. But yeah, like reading that original script, going through it, I'm just, yeah, I was like uh, Mickey Rooney in The Simpsons. I was like, oh, I could play that. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I just love the idea of it. I love the way that, you know, it, it viciously gets to the heart of the how problematic the comedy world is for women, um, uh, yeah, especially uh, for women, I, I, what it's like uh, to be on like a network show on something that millions of people watch, how high stakes that is, uh, how producers get involved, how investors get involved. 
and it's a brutal world. Like it is, it's it can be just awful. It can feel like you're dumped in a tank full of sharks, and also your scuba suit is made entirely out of chum. And it's like, well, I'm gonna die, you know. Um, so I I really I was really taken by those ideas, and of course when it was changing in a writer's room. I, uh, Moses Neimer, who was uh, the one who approached Cat about uh, doing a collaboration with his company, said, well, you know, uh, Zoomer focuses on uh, a boomer market. Um, so he's like, I also am interested in ideas of ageism. And what do you do when you're seen as being like too old to be on television or your jokes are stale? Like it, it's not keeping up with like the young Twitter generation. Um, so putting that in was also interesting. Um, and finding the ways that um, everyone in the show is both the hero of their own story and the villain of everyone else's um, is, is a very delicate balance. So yeah, that was, that was really cool and interesting to find. So yeah, the development of it was like, it, it was hard. It was, it was hard work. These were, uh, these were long days. Uh, I mean, luckily, like it was an equity contract. So, you know, we had our mandatory breaks and, and we couldn't go over eight hours. Sometimes for better or worse. Um, sometimes you do just want to keep going, but it's like I also don't want to get in trouble with the union because they they will come. They will <laughs> come for you. Uh, so uh, it it did like it didn't have I'd say in the development process the same kind of pure zany joy that Retreat had. But that's what that play was. Late night was not that. Late night was I think it was darker and 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 in some ways uh, more subtle and required a, a kind of uh, focus of intent and uh, an extremely s steep work ethic in order to get through it. So, but I mean, the, the, you do good work. Uh, it doesn't, it, it, it should be hard sometimes. You know, it, it, when you're making a show, it's not always like, oh my God, I'm having the best time in, in my life with friends. No, sometimes you're putting fires out all over the place. And and I mean, I was just an actor in it. Uh, like, I can't even imagine all of the stuff that Tom McGee had to deal with, everything that Kat had to deal with. Like, she was being pulled in so many directions. But, and I said this in our last interview too, like, her leadership skills are so on point that even if she's about to like tear her hair out or explode, she knows how to take care of everyone around her as well and knows how to like steer the ship, um, which is just absolutely incredible to, to watch. It's, it's pretty inspiring. So it was, it was a lot of high stress, um, and especially being a theater production company working with uh, television producers and realizing how many things we didn't know, we didn't know about both worlds, uh, taking certain things for granted that like if we're rehearsing a scene the tech guys aren't going to come in and start setting up the lights and talking loudly or some guy isn't going to just start filming and interviewing us for stuff for zoomer to put on social media or no like we're in the middle of blocking a really tough scene so we can't go do an interview on am 680 right now but uh you make it work uh you just have to understand that there are we're at the end of the day saying the same things just in much different languages so it was an interesting process of almost like coming together to create um, a language that we could both understand, kind of like what the Phoenicians did uh, back in the day when they were uh, 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 making uh, trades with people all around ancient Greece. Always wanted to shoehorn a reference to the Phoenicians in an interview, and I did it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so it was, it was 
it was it was hard. Um, I, 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 but in an experience that, of course, I, I would never, ever in the world regret, like the hard work was worth it and it paid off. And it, through that struggle to create something, I think you find a lot more in yourself and in the people around you. And, you know, your body may be sore, your brain feels fried, you go home so exhausted at the end of the day, but you know it's for a good reason. Like, it was worth the time and the effort and you know, the, the tears and all that stuff. So, yeah. Um, but I guess sometimes that's what happens when you get uh, up to, like, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say higher level, but there's there's more involved, there's more at stake, there are more moving parts. It gets bigger, it gets complicated, and you figure out a way to, to deal with that and to not only, you know, survive it, but to thrive in it and to help everyone else around you thrive as well. And Kat Sandler is known for tailoring her scripts to her cast quite, um, and often writing specifically for them. You said this was a script that already existed. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that uh, it really comments on a world that you understand and challenges faced by women in comedy, and that's something you experience in your own life. Yeah. What were some of the things that you brought to the character and how the character changed when you were added to the process? Oh, um, uh, well, probably the fact that... Um, the, the book that Sarah Goldberg has on it, that the jacket cover was a picture of me with a recorder up my nose. I think that was the main thing that I brought to it. Uh, the, yeah, definitely the biggest, the biggest thing. Um, I, I would say, uh, like, already the role was, like, really on point. It was already, like, I recognized who this person was, and I felt a lot of myself in it. However, uh, when I started approaching the role... Um, and you know we're we're rewriting the script together, and we're um, adding lines and changing things and putting plot points in. As a comedian, I yeah, I came into it thinking like, ah oh, yeah, like I know what I'm doing. I host shows all the time, you know. I know how to talk to people. I know how to riff and make jokes. But what I really know how to do, and uh, I, this sounds very self uh, congratulatory on my part, but like I know how to carry a show, a comedy show. Like I know how to like save a scene that's that's going a little bit pear shaped or. I know how to read the room and an audience, and I uh, I know how to like tailor things to them. I know how to make, uh, you know, you, yeah, sometimes I'll, like I'll say jokes, and it's like, ugh, that bombed. But I know how to recover from that and keep going. Whereas there were a lot of parts with uh, the role of Sarah Goldberg, where in order for specific plot points to happen, she had to fumble the ball so hard, and it was so difficult for me not to like add jokes or add things that would make things go smoother. It was, it was like I was brought on board because of my involvement in the comedy world, but then asked to like really tamp down those, those instincts that I had honed because of the comedy world. Um, and Kat would joke about this, especially like later in the process. She's like, I can see you holding back. And I appreciate that. Cause I, it, it's just, it's torture as an improviser where you're there and like Nigel is so brilliant because of who his character was in the show he's allowed to just like go off and riff and do everything he wants and I'm just like oh get me off the bench coach I want to riff too <laughs> um, but uh, at the same time you know there would still like be certain jokes that I'd throw out there and Kat be like cool let's let's keep that so it was about finding out when was appropriate to do that and the longer that we rehearsed and the more like I really dug into Sarah's character, the more I, I understood exactly how she would make those jokes and why she would do it. Now, then it wasn't Kat Latwin riffing because she likes to do it. It was Sarah Goldberg 
um, trying and uh, sometimes succeeding, but oftentimes failing quite miserably, and finding the balance between um, sympathy and failure for her. How does she dig her own grave, but how do other people start burying her in that grave she stumbled into? Was was really interesting. So I, I did bring my experience from the comedy world, but I think moreover, I, I was curious about the empathy of the character. Um, I was I was interested in creating a comedian who was me, but definitely not me at the same time. Like, I I'm I'm I love making like blow J jokes. I do. It's great, but that's not necessarily the kind of like stand up I'm gonna do. Um, so for this woman who's like built herself up as like this this sex comic, uh, this more like Amy Schumer type uh, character. I don't know. I was I was curious about her inner life uh, mostly, and so you know, weaseling my way into that, and then going from the inside out, um, as opposed to when I normally make characters, they, they tend to be like I get cast in like big, you know, ridiculous sort of parts where I'm like, okay, I've got a lot of like uh, points from the outside, and then I go inside to it. Whereas this, um, and I will say, I think this is one of the toughest roles I played, which was odd considering how close I thought it would be to me. But that makes it even more difficult because it's hard to really look at yourself in a mirror and 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 take those like those deep insecurities or take the worst parts of yourself and and put that on display and have that transform into someone else, someone that the audience is, you know, hopefully going to relate to, or they understand them even if they hate them at the same time. So yeah, I guess uh, I brought that. Um, I also supplied my own boots for the show. They were from Forever 21. And yeah, I think that actually, yeah, not the book, the boots were the big part. That's, <laughs> that's what it was. They were great boots. Hey, thank you. So your character in Late Night is replacing her comedy hero mm. on his talk show that he's legendarily hosted for decades. If you were to steal the job of any of your comedy idols, whose would you steal and what would you do with that job? Oh, oh boy. Oh, that's a big question. Um, oh, gosh. Um, woof. Woof. I guess, um, hmm. I'm thinking like, see, I'm not I'm not a cartoonist or an animator, but I love the work of Brad Neely. He, I think he's he's absolutely one of my favorite comedians ever. Uh, he created this. Uh, he's got a show on Adult Swim, which honestly is like it's just okay. But his web series of like Baby Cakes and China Illinois and the Professor Brothers, um, you know, they and these are made in like early to mid 2000s and I rewatched all of them recently and like they still bring me to tears when I laugh. So I would love to be able to take his, his uh, the position of where he is now and I guess uh, uh, kind of just keep doing what he's doing, this sort of like absolutely absurd, uh, uh, strangely uh, deep uh, and, and very intelligent work. Like I, I love the way he has us empathize with his characters while also showing how ridiculous they are. Um, with Baby Cakes especially, like, um, he's this, like, weird, like, kind of man-child who loves D&D, but he has a very deep, rich, strange inner life, and the way he looks at the world is, is so 
is so interesting and kind of sad, but also just fucking funny. Yeah, I, I would like to, you know, be in his position where I have access to a lot of um, like like well-known talent and be able to like keep making that kind of weird, bizarre stuff. Also, I guess similar to that would be like I would love to do what Maria Bamford does. Um, and yeah, again, I definitely talked about her in the last interview we did, but the hits just keep coming for the bam, uh, for the old bammer. No one calls her that. Oh God, let one come on. Um, everything from like her stand-up to her, her web series and then like her new Netflix show, which so beautifully showed and, and in a very vulnerable way, like showed her struggles with like mental illness and again, um, she's she's being honest. She's using the, the her honest experiences and and uh, the truths that she's lived, and and marrying it with her absolutely weird sense of humor. Her the surreality of that show is just uh, num 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 so good. Um, and that the way that she does it, where she's not hiding behind the jokes. The jokes are used as a way to like go even deeper. Um, that's I I just I respect that so much, and that's absolutely the kind of humor that I, I like to think that I do and that um, uh, hopefully I'm getting better at. And it's funny with this question in particular, I'm just like, I can't, I can't take over their jobs. They're so good. They're so good. So I'd at least like to like use them as inspiration and then see the path that, uh, that they've created and then use that as a starting base to kind of uh, form my own thing. So yeah, yeah. Um, and Okay, but for real though, like, bless Trevor Noah's heart. Like, I think, um, uh, I think I'm not saying he's he's done a bad job, but at all. Um, and also, like, who am I to talk? He's got his own TV show. I did almost genius. Like, okay, come on. <laughs> um, but there's uh, the there's something about having that seat of power that would allow for such like sharp political commentary um, uh, to really to really make change to challenge status quos to not only make people laugh but use that humor as like like a really sharp knife because sometimes sometimes you gotta cut someone you know what I'm saying not physically <laughs> but in the soul you do and sometimes I deserve it so I, I feel like for him that's an opportunity miss but we see that picked up by people like Samantha B who um, you know when I was doing late night and this Sarah Goldberg character, I'm like, okay, this character wants is Amy Schumer, but I can't let one want her so hard to be Samantha B. But I'm like, no, that's not this play. That's not that. That's me. That's, and it really crystallized that for me while uh, uh, doing the the process of Cat's play. It was like, right, okay, I I am an actor now playing this specific kind of comedian, and I will make that funny in the style of this person. And then deep down, um, uh, having my own comedic voice coming into focus and realizing, you know, after I'm done this show and after, you know, I'm done Shaft's Gallery and I, I have more time to do more comedy again, I'm like, I know what I want to do, actually. I, I, have to, I have to stop being afraid of my own voice because uh, all these people that I've named who I respect are so singular in the way that they communicate with the world um, and their ideas, uh, they're just... They're so special, and there are things that they say and do that only those people can say and do. So, yeah, um, that's that's what I would like to, to 
do and, and see going forward. Um, so, yeah, sorry, sorry, Trev. Like, I think I'm sure your voice is great, but I don't know what it is, um, and that can be very like. Then how do you hook onto something like that? He's gonna call me in tears now because he definitely has my phone number, yes. and he's just gonna be like, <laughs> he's like a cat. I I thought I thought we had something special here, and I'll be like, Trev, like. Let me coach you on this. Let me give you some good advice. Because, you know, I just want to help his career because uh, I definitely know what I'm doing. Anyway, we'll, we'll get over it. Uh, we're adults. Did you have any specific plans for the way in which you're going to go about bringing your own voice to things? Uh, well, I, uh, I applied to a bunch of fringes. I got into Hamilton Fringe uh, uh, this year. And one thing that I've uh, been afraid of doing for a long time is doing a one-woman show. A, because I'm like, every time someone says, oh, I'm doing a one-person show at Fringe, you're just like, of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. Yeah. And there's that sense of like, oh, honey, really? Come on. So, you know, but that's an immediate value judgment like I put on myself where I'm just like, oh, I'm worried that what people will think. I'm like, ah, that gets in the way of art. And what I want to do with it is um, marry these uh, the the theatrical sensibilities that I have that, that you know that I've I've got the training I've done a bunch of plays like I know how to produce a show I know how to put stuff up um, so all that is taken care of and I've done enough fringes to know how it goes I've never done Hamilton fringe but um, I have friends who have so like they can give me the lowdown on that um, and then of course like knowing that I I have now like this this stronger sense of what my own comedic voice is and as I said it's it's being able to marry like the jokes and be genuinely funny but with something much sadder uh something much more human and real and that kind of thing you can't necessarily do like at a comedy club and i'm always happy to perform like when i go to like bad dog or i go to comedy bar or you know i've done some like open mic sets around the city and it's like, okay, what the audience sees, like, they came here for, like, some jokes. Let's chuck some yucks here, all right? Um, but I love the idea of being able to explore using humor as a tool, like, what it means, like, to, to live in either pain or, or, or sadness, to, to deal with the ugly fundamental truths of what it means to be a human in a world that often feels very cold and very lonely. Um... And that's what I'm excited to, to do. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so I also want to, like, preview the show in Toronto. Um, I'm currently in talks with a few people as far as, like, directing is concerned and dramaturgy and all that stuff. So I'm, I feel like I'm really, I'm going to put myself really out there. And my goal with that is not only to, uh, you know, do my previously stated goals, but also not hide um it's it's very easy to hide behind jokes it's uh i think most people uh, most funny people develop their sense of humor as as a safety mechanism and if you're constantly using it to like paper over all the things all those like really bad real feelings that you have um a it's easy to weaponize your comedy which uh can be very destructive um if, if you're not wielding that in the right way um and it's also a way to ignore a lot of parts of yourself that, that you don't want to face. And I want to put that ugliness out there. I want, I want to fully embrace the things that I'm afraid of people knowing about me. And 
I think in that way, I'm going to find something that is not only like artistically honest, but also genuinely entertaining. Like you can hear the difference between a laugh that comes because like, oh, that is a cleverly constructed joke. Like, or like, oh, that's a pun, but it's a good pun. But then the kind of laugh that you get from an audience member where you are bringing them almost so, so close to the ground that they're afraid they're going to crash. And then you keep them safe and like pull them back up. It's a laugh not only of like relief, but this almost like shocking sort of like, oh my God, yeah, this is funny. I thought this was just going to be so, oh, but this is hilarious. Oh my God, this is dark. <laughs> oh, but it's fun. So uh, I, that's one of the venues that I plan on using uh, uh, in this upcoming year. Um, I've also resolved to, to do uh, more stand-up, which I, I hate but it's, I think, uh, necessary for my personal comedic development. And then um, on the opposite end of that, um, when I improvise, and I actually, uh, Simon McCamus gave me some very good advice recently. And he said, uh, you know, and it sounds so simple and it's so hard to do, but he said, like, don't be afraid of your own joy on stage. Like, just every idea can be a great idea. Just keep going. There's no perfectionism. There's no controlling a scene. There's, there's no creating something like nothing will ever be perfect except the moment you happen to be in every moment is perfect and you will string those perfect moments together to make something as as absurd as you want as delightful as you want as as special and and as as personal as you want as well so i think mixing this the written work that i plan on doing um, and honing my stand up voice and then also just like going balls to the wall in the improv that i choose to do I'm, I'm excited to get all those things out there because um, I'm, I'm not only, I'm not, you know, one thing inside me. There's, there's, you know, we're all complicated human beings. So I think really running the gamut and exploring everything it is uh, that makes me who I am and sharing that with not only uh, scene partners, but also audiences as well. Like that's, that's what I'm really excited about. It's like no more... Uh, you know, standing in the shadows and um, being afraid to like really uh, take control of, of my own life. I like collaborating with people, but sometimes I use it as a crutch. It's, you know, you can stand near the edge when you're collaborating with someone, but then you can watch them fall off and be like, woof, well, that wasn't me. But when it's just you out there, like if whether it's a one person show or uh, a solo set or you are working with other people, but it's like your idea, it's your writing, and it's your vision. That's you on the line. And I think it is such a brave thing to, to be able to step up and do that. And it's something I have not been brave enough to do yet. So that's that's going to be basically 2017 in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> in a very verbose, winding nutshell there. It's a giant walnut. In terms of sort of single artist-led projects... Do you feel like that is something that women are discouraged from doing more than men? I would say yes. <laughs> I don't think um, I don't think it's it's obvious. It, like it's it's not a bunch of dudes like shuffling into rooms saying, "You there, go with the idea. You stop that now." And I don't know why they're all wearing pork pie hats, but uh, old tiny vests. Um, it's yeah. It's not as it's not as um, 
outwardly sexist as that, absolutely. But I do think, uh, and it's, you know, it's baked in the culture that we live in, that we are, are less ready to listen to women's voices. We are less likely to trust them in a leadership position. We are, we just, we, yeah, we, we grow and live and work in, in a patriarchal culture. That's, that's like, you know, let's, let's call it what it is. So whether intentional or not, I, I think it's easier to give uh, credence to um, a male's voice. And in so many different subtle ways, uh, you know, boys growing up are encouraged to be leaders, uh, to, to get their voice out there or to be captain of the football team. It's seen as a, a sign of like strength and vitality and virility and, and man. With women, with little girls, you try and organize something called bossy, right? You bring up uh, a something like a, a problem that needs getting fixed and even people see you as a complainer. You try and take charge on your own, and it's suddenly it's like, well, well, that's you just stepped over a line. Or one of my uh, one of the phrases in my mom's family when she was growing up was, uh, "Don't get above your raisin." What does that mean? It's just like uh, so. Ra- it's like raising, but like raisin. You know, you gotta you gotta drop the G on that, which means like, oh, like you you think you're good, you're not. Like ah. you're you know here's here's your station. So don't think you can you can do anything else or get above that like this sort of like who do you think you are huh oh really you think uh you think you're so good eh i am good luck with that (laughs) uh yeah there's this this yeah this i think there's there's this feeling um i know kat sandler has encountered it for sure um and uh those are her stories to tell so i'm i'm not gonna get into that but I, you know, even personally, like I've had experiences in uh, in comedy and in theater from very like lovely, like well-meaning men, men who I do consider allies, and they consider themselves allies. Where it's like I, I'll say an idea, and then I have to repeat it three times before it's heard, or I'll say an idea, and then five minutes later, a guy will say the same idea, and then it's like, wow, that's a good idea. Or I found like even stuff that I've written somehow gets co-opted to be actually done by someone else. And it can be a very insidious process where it's like, okay, my, my work is clearly good enough and is integral to the shows that I'm doing and the productions that I'm putting up, but somehow I'm not the one who's getting uh, credit or recognition for those things, for, for creating those things. Um, and that can be frustrating. It almost feels like, like, uh, gaslighting is not the right term for it, but, uh, what's, what's a, what's a needlessly long metaphor I can use for this? Here we go. Okay. It's like picking up like, uh, 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 two big handfuls of sand and it's like, wow, I got all this sand. Like, check this out, all the shit. And then you just like feel it going through your fingers and, and you're trying to hold on to it, but then eventually it, it disappears sometimes it feels like that like i can feel it and i'm sort of watching this co-option happening or i'm feeling myself getting like more cut out of like fundamental leadership processes in what i'm doing and it can be very 
subtle in the ways that it happens, so it's hard to grasp onto. It's it's hard to call people out on it. Or if you do, you worry that you're overreacting or is it all in my head? I mean, these people are my friends, so why would they be doing this to me? That that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. As I said, it's it's not I think most of the time it's not done on purpose, but it's just easy. It's easy to get away with. Um, it's uh, and because it's so so hard to call out without potentially ruining your own reputation or um, damaging relationships, sometimes irreparably. So there are all these kind of. It's not just a glass ceiling. It's glass doorways. Uh, it's you see someone like open the door to like oh. I, I'm talented enough and I'm, I'm experienced enough to like get into that room and then you walk and it's just, you, you smack into something and you don't know what it is. So, yeah, I, I think in a myriad of ways, uh, women tend to be discouraged from really putting themselves out there, from being those leaders that, that they want to be, that they can see themselves being. Because also, if you fail, you're penalized twice as harsh. So you have to be twice as good to get to that space. And then... If you try something and it fails, the chances of you getting another break are so slim. So there's this idea that like everything you do has to be so perfect. And if it has to be perfect, then maybe I'm not ready because if I, if I, if I try something and it's not, then, oh my God, I'm going to ruin everything I've ever built up. Uh, I've been living in a house of cards this whole time. They're all going to see it. And it's, I, I think... Sometimes there's a sick joy that's taken in, in seeing um, people try and fail, and I think especially for women. And again, I can't stress this enough. It's not, it's not people being very obvious, you know, twirling their mustaches and saying like, yes, I hope those ladies collapse and fail. Ooh, I cannot wait to dance Palm Vale Graves. It's not that, but there is, there's something inside, and... I say this because I also have internalized sexism as well. Like, why is it when I'm on a project, like, I, I will still sometimes feel, like, more deferential to a male's voice in it, or, or I feel there's more power in what they're saying, which lends to my own sense of oppression. I was like, if I'm, if someone who's been a feminist since she was, like, six uh, still feels that, and I've done the work to examine this, to, to deconstruct it, then how are most people going to feel who maybe haven't done that work or just aren't aware of it? Again, like good people with good hearts, but just perpetuating something that they don't even know that they're perpetuating at the same time. It's very complicated. But at the end of the day, the only way to like start getting over that is, is to take those chances. And, uh, you know, we see this now with... Um, there, there, there are more female voices on TV uh, and in theater. Like a lot of the most exciting work that I've seen in the past year has definitely come from women. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, there's of course like all, a lot of a lot of other like oppression stuff. Like, do we see enough uh, voices from women of color? Absolutely not. Absolutely, we don't. So I like shout out to uh, Neil Handa's show Yas Queen at uh, Bad Dog Theater, which uh, specifically highlights uh, comedians of color, and it's just, like, the best. It's such a good, good show, and it's so important. So, yeah, uh, just, just um, for me, 
And I think for a lot of women, it's having to get over these things that not only we've been internalized, but have been taught in a number of ways and kind of saying like, fuck it to it. Um, I, and, and just fucking doing it. And if we fail, then we absorb that failure and you analyze what you've done and you mourn and you feel dumb for a bit, but you move on and you know, you, you develop strength and resilience going through that and it's not fair it's not fair to have to develop that but that's the world that we're in okay so if i want this to continue to be something that i want to do if i want this to eventually not be the world we're in then i have to like step up and make that change and put myself out there and that's really really hard but you know we're doing it we're, we're doing it like um, that's why, like, I, I think uh, the fact that Cat Sandler is so pl- uh, prolific and so respected and is just so deeply, desperately important to our scene to see her, like, really just, just do this, like, getting the work done. She pulls crazy hours. She, um, uh, she just, I don't know. There's, there's a driving force about her that is really inspiring to watch and to be around. And a certainly, like, in my working with her and becoming friends with her has made me be like, you know what? I need to do this, too. I need to take a page out of her book and just, like, be unafraid of, of that work. Well, not maybe unafraid's not the right word, but to feel the fear and do it anyway, I guess. So, yeah, it's there are barriers, but it's slowly getting better, and I hope that I can also make it just slightly better in my own stupid dumb way uh, with with jokes and stuff so late night is still sort of a boys club it's very much a place where men have almost all of the major jobs but very likely a related issue it's also really a fading medium late night set in a world that is sort of a shadow of its former self you think back of like the johnny carson era Right. So what are some of the ways that that medium can evolve and sort of stay with the times and stay relevant with new media happening and with new demographics emerging? Um, I think, uh, I don't know, I'm like, now I'm like pointing to a man to show you how it's done. Well, also, uh, you know, Samantha B does this as well. So there we go. Um, I just gave myself a little cookie for that. Um, <laughs> what John Oliver does with his show, where... He gets, uh, I think, most of his views through um, the clips that he releases online. So they're very shareable. Like, they go viral very quickly and very easily. And they're also easily consumable, um, even as longer segments that he releases. Uh, you know, in 10 minutes does seem like forever in, like, YouTube land. But, you know, I'm happy to sit down and watch John Oliver for 10 minutes. Um, so the way that they're, they strategize by using social media and understanding that, okay, the way that people pay for content now is not the way it was 10 years ago. So how can we actually like monetize this and get the sense for like uh, uh, consumers of that media that they feel like they're getting a lot of stuff for free. Um, but at the same time, they're still, you know, they have to watch ads and the revenue, you know, goes to the people who are creating this content. Then they are more likely to maybe like sign up for HBO Go and decide they want to watch the full episodes of John Oliver. Uh, Samantha Bee does that as well. Uh, she releases uh, great clips online, and I think you can watch her stuff too on like the 
Comedy Network site, I think, which has like the worst video player in the world, but you know, you get what you pay for, which is nothing. Um, yeah, I feel like that has also made the comedy and the style of comedy that they do evolve. It's not just like, John is still sitting stationary at a desk, but the way that he's interacting with the jokes that are being made beside him with, you know, like the, the visuals that are popping up or the way that he does spectacle a lot more than other, uh, I would say, hosts have done in the past. Like he, he's, I, you know, I'm sure, I think there's a segment of him in like in a giant chicken costume or something. Like there's more ridiculousness to it. There's um, uh, Samantha B. Uh, goes off and like does these segments with other people, uh, you know, goes off and does interviews and is making jokes throughout those. Whereas with the old format of in what Marty O'Malley was doing in Late Night, you know, just sitting behind a desk, uh, you have your opening monologue, and then, yeah, you chat with your guests and get to know them, and that's kind of how that goes. And that does feel, like, very staid. That feels just like, I don't know, it's, it's, not, it's not fresh, right? And, of course, that was also part of uh, uh, the conflicts in, in the show was uh, Marty not wanting to, like, play you know, like celebrity karaoke with his guests or like bring out a bunch of puppies that they could all pet. He just wanted to like tell what he thought were good jokes in that respectable way. You know, it's like, well, this is what comedy is. You, you have a setup and you have your punchline and you move on and you talk about the topics of the day and then you have your guest on and you, you make your own little jokes, but uh, also you're just getting to know someone and having a conversation with them. There's nothing wrong with that, but... I think the, the needs and the demands of, uh, you know, the growing millennial population who are um, uh, people who are younger than me, even like, uh, like Gen X people as well, like there's, I don't know, there's, there's, there's something more that they need and they want. Like, so, I mean, it's still like a big deal to go and be on like Jimmy Fallon or, or Jimmy Kimmel or any of the Jimmys. Um, uh, I think those, yeah, those are the only two Jimmys. But wow, they, wow, they really did it. Um, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, as as you said, it's it's definitely it's changed. And even um, of all the late night hosts that are they're currently active, I would still say like Conan is my favorite one. I always liked watching him the best when I was younger, and I also just like fundamentally like his sense of humor more than everyone else's. But that's because he does tend toward more of like the absurd and his presence is so charming and he will experiment with like having like large groups of people um on like i watched uh, uh ken hall wonderful improviser was just on conan with the cast of people of earth and watching him conduct an interview with that many people was really fun and very interesting the way that he set up the guests to like have their joke moments like it was was really cool um you wouldn't have never, I don't think you'd ever see that like necessarily on like Carson. Although, you should ask Maria Vakratzis about this. She has an encyclopedic knowledge of late night humor uh, and, and shows. It was just like when we were in rehearsals, she would just go off and be like, holy shit, are you a book? Are you a book? Um, yeah, yeah. It is, um, I don't know of too, too many comedians around who would be like, yeah, my goal is to have the chair of a late night show. I think, much like the way that uh, young people tend to approach their careers and their jobs, you don't want to be saddled or, or anchored with something or a particular identity for too long. And there is something very anchoring about sitting behind a desk. 
It's like that's who you are as a person. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, people just aren't necessarily excited about that anymore. I've rambled on this topic a lot, so I'm going to just leave that there. I think <laughs> you can maybe use one sentence out of that. <laughs> having, you, having now done a production that really melded the two forms of, film, of television and theater and used a lot of the technology and promotional tools mm-hmm. available in the television world, in a theatrical medium, what are some of the lessons that the theater and indie theater producers specifically can learn from like a late night model or television in general and apply to their medium to maybe bring in new viewers or keep up with the times? Right, right. Um, I think a huge, huge thing is uh, production value, not just in your, uh, your stage show, but in the advertising that you use to get people in. And uh, I know Kat Sanders talked about this as well, and uh, so has Tom McGee. And I absolutely agree with them. If you're gonna make content um, to sell your show, give me a reason why A, I'm gonna watch this, and B, I should come to see your show. Like, I'm I'm not gonna, like it doesn't matter how, how good you think your own show is. If the, the advertising that you're putting out there, if the posts you're making about it, if the tweets you're making, if the videos you're creating and releasing aren't, well done or they don't speak to the message of what the show is if it's not showing me what it is that I can expect then why would you expect me to come it's not enough to build it and they will come we all know baseball ghosts aren't real and neither (laughs) is is that idea you have to actually sell your show and it doesn't require like a whole like a really intense understanding of of social media I mean that helps but um it just, it just means that you understand that the people maybe don't know you. And even if you are doing something that you think is like dense or if it's like really experimental, there's an audience for that. So how you have to ask those questions of yourself. Like how, how does this play make me feel? Why is it vital? Why is it important? And then, and it's tough when you're working with very little money, but you have to get the right people on board to be able to help you sell it. If you don't know how to sell it yourself, Hire someone who can write uh, 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 some PR for you, who can at least write a press release if you're, because you need that. Or we all have like uh, videographer friends or, or like, people who are just like better at making like short films or, or, or have connections to that world. You find ways to wrangle that. You get them on board. It's like, yeah, I think with television um, and movies, they have the luxury of not disappearing as soon as they're done. So you can like make a series and then later people will discover it, you know, like, like Arrested Development, and then it'll get popular again. But with the theater show, like once it's gone, it's gone. So you have to like really make that push right from the get-go to, to get people to come out. So know your audience, know yourself, know the show, and I think if you have that base, you can move forward and create something, uh, whether they're like videos or, or, or um, interactive posts or whatever, can make something that will speak to people and get them curious and pique their interest. That Yeah, so I think, I think that's what, that could help quite a bit. Because I mean, we've all seen shows where like you see their poster and you're just like, oh. <laughs> Well, that's going to be a tire fire. 
<laughs> Ugh, yuck. And I'm, you know, I my time is precious, kind of. Especially at something like like a fringe festival. Mm. I'm not gonna go see a show with the little time and budget that I have that I think is gonna be kind of garbage because I saw the poster and I was like, well, they clearly put no effort into it. Or if they did, but it's a hot mess. I'm going to assume a lot based on that. Mm-hmm. So I'll see that and be like, well, if they can't even take care of like a simple poster, then how is their show going to be any good either? Um, I mean, on the flip side, I think we've all seen shows where it's like all the media around it is so beautiful and you realize, wow, they spent all their time uh, promoting it and then forgot they had a show to do. Well, that can be... Um, that can be like a, a tough ride, uh, line, uh, yeah, a tough line to ride. But yeah, it's um, it's great if you believe in your own stuff. Get other people to believe too. You know, we wouldn't have Christianity around if it was just one guy who was like, "Man, that Jesus, he was cool." <laughs> anyway, and then just like moved along. Like, no, that was a very successful ad campaign. I mean, they had a logo. It was a fish. <laughs> <laughs> moment in that production okay uh, is this a oh my god uh, okay so oh, I have a couple of favorite moments one uh, a favorite moment for me and one was just a favorite moment to watch um, and they're actually oh sorry I stepped on your foot we're sitting down and I stepped on your foot oh, I'm so talented uh, and they happen actually very close together so Rachel Jones who played uh, Marty's wife Vivian Lawrence and who also did just like a brilliant job one of my favorite parts of the show to watch was her, like, so she's, like, drunk. She's taking uh, these Xanax pills, and she is getting all sorts of loopy. And she's upset because it's been insinuated that Marty and I slept together. So she's kind of, like, been dealing with it. But then the cracks really start to show. And she gives this beautiful monologue. Like, she'd been kind of getting a bit clowny up to that point, And then just, just this heart breaking moment where she's telling Marty like how like it's not fair because I still love you I can't shut those feelings off and her realizing like well we've built all this stuff together and is love enough for both of us is is can we survive this and it was so wonderfully performed and and I loved also like hearing the audience go from like laughing at what she was doing to like quietly chuckling then just so intently listening to what she had to say and that is a beautiful feeling to have in the theater and I'm sitting at the desk and this is my favorite moment for me and the cameras are on and and the audience can see uh what what the cameras are filming at the time and then they're also watching like this entire you know live thing go down and the camera uh, like cuts to Marty, and he's like, "Go away!" And then it slowly pans up to me, just staring in horror at what's happened and not paying attention to the camera. And then finally, Maria telling me to look at the camera and just having to get the show back on track. Uh, it was such a beautiful use of uh, our capabilities of our television broadcast to make a joke. So the camera became our characters in it. So seeing how their gaze shifted up to me was so funny. Um, 
but also the fact that the audience had just had this moment of, of beautiful vulnerability from Rachel's character. And this goes back to one of my favorite styles of jokes where you hurdle them really close to the ground and then you pull them back up. And when the camera came up to my face, that's when, that's when the audience got pulled back up. And, the, and it was that laugh of like, oh God, this is so awful, but holy fuck, this is so fucking funny. Um, so yeah, favorite part for me, but also the same time a part I dreaded because I'm like, in order for this to work, I can't laugh. And hearing everyone laugh and knowing it's coming, it was like, especially the first few days, I was like, oh God, oh God, I'm gonna crack. Oh no, I'm gonna ruin everything. But it was uh, just, oh, loved it. Oh, what a what a great, great, awful moment. So yeah. <laughs> then right after Late Night closed, you mentioned earlier that you returned to the Chasse Gallery, but this time at a totally different venue. Yeah. Huge, huge venue. It's been picked up by Soul Pepper. How did that production change when it transferred to such a bigger house with different resources? Oh, well, I mean, um, there were some cast changes and like a lot of this had to do with, you know, as even though like we were getting more money there's still never enough money to go around and um soul pepper has the soul pepper academy which uh james smith is a part of and so is um hunter cardinal and nicole power um who are joining the cast so i uh, yeah having having new cast members also like will always change something and they were all wonderful like hunter and nicole were just so so good at their craft. It's like, wait, they're in the Soul Pepper Academy. They're good actors. Hold the phone. <laughs> of course they are. They're they're amazing. Um, and then uh, Tyrone had made changes to the script, and we didn't really see a lot of those changes that were made. And so it was just like, okay, like like a couple of them. Like we had some read throughs beforehand, but it was like this sense of like, okay, from our collectively created scripts. Now it's like, well now this is the plot line and this is how these scenes go and it was like oh okay all right so to go from like just totally making something um off the cuff like on your feet and building that up with other people to have um one voice that's um louder on the page than other voices it was like oh that's different to deal with so now it's not so much like improvising together and creating these characters it's like okay we we have this script that we've written before but now it's changed which then also, and like, uh, there was another character added that Hunter played. And it's like, okay, so that will fundamentally change what the show is. I mean, I still had lots, uh, lots of room to improvise because yeah, after coming off late night where I'm like, no, I'm going to control myself. I was just like, nope, uh, <laughs> nothing but improv for <laughs> all that win here. In fact, Tess Benger, uh, who uh, was in the show as well, I had this joke with me. She was like, one day I want to do a show with Kat Latwin where she has to stay on script and I get to improvise. And I was like, yes, that would be hell for me. She's like, I know, I know. And I'm like, oh, yes, that would be such, such a, such a challenge. Uh, that was also just like, it's true. It's true. I do, uh, I do so rarely look at the script when I'm doing, when I'm doing chess. Um, so there was that, like, uh, there was a sense that like I still had a lot of control over my character and also the scenes that um that Mike Cox and I did together were still like very much us and we did in the rehearsal process and frankly during the run of the show like we added a bunch of stuff we're just like we could feel how to shape it in the moment so we would um so yeah that 
that was different. Um, obviously, having the bigger space was something else because we were, you know, playing at storefronts. Um, it, it was so intimate. It was so like you, you take one step and you're like sitting on someone's lap. And there's something really beautiful about that. The energy that that created, the magic of that was was really special and something else. So the idea of like how do you take this this show that maybe only felt big because it was in a small space and how do you fill uh, a space like the one we used at Salt Pepper? And I, I, I think that worked at the end of the day. It was hard not having everyone immediately around me or like when we're doing the pre-show that I had to like climb all these stairs to like get to the back row to talk to people. Um, you know, we lost some of that intimacy, but the energy of everyone involved in the cast I think also filled the space and we got everyone like on board with that. I think we, we created this really nice, cozy, warm feeling with this ridiculous musical about drinking and Satan and, <laughs> and canoes and, and lady friendship. So yeah. And then, yeah, having Tyrone uh, play a character in the show while also directing, it's like, it's different when, when someone, uh, who's like an outside eye is now inside of it. Um, how do you how do you navigate that, right? So there was there was that, but also like um, we all played instruments this time. Uh, they they made me learn a ukulele, and especially after doing late night, I was just like a frig, really. Like after watching um, Whisper Phillips on her uke, and, and I have this personal thing, I'm just like, oh god damn it! Like oh, I'm a young woman playing a ukulele. I'm that now. Gah. But. That's probably just more internalized sexism on my part. Uh, yeah, um, so that was cool. And again, like having an equity contract, we're actually getting paid for this. So we're putting in like, you know, six days a week, uh, eight hours, but getting some like financial gain out of it was really exciting. Yeah, it was, um, the, uh, it was in a bigger space and, you know, there was more music. So I guess in ways it felt bigger. Um, and especially like the second half was totally changed from the way we did it at Storefront. So, you know, it's it was like the same but but a different show. Yeah, I um, I think the money changed it and the space changed it insofar as we all still felt like a bunch of like, you know, a scrappy ragtag group of heroes coming into a fancy place. And it is, like, at least for me personally, it's just, remember our first day in Soul Pepper, I'm like, oh, man, uh, this place is too classy for me. <laughs> like, oh, should I draw a dick on the wall? Should I, no, don't, this is a nice place. This is a nice place. Uh, so, yeah, it made it, 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 like, the stakes did feel higher. And there was a worry of, like, did this work just because of, where we happened to be in the time that we made it last year because our audience age tended to skew young. But that luckily that wasn't the case. Like the the show and the spirit of it stands on its own and I it it will the way that that show feels and the way that it's performed by people who are so invested in it because they love it so much. It was a labor of love when we did it at Storefront and continued to be uh, a labor of love when we did it at Soul Pepper, and you can you can feel that, and that that charms people. I remember um, a friend of mine came and saw the show, and he texted me 
at intermission and he was like i'm i'm actually like feeling emotional right now because i can feel from everyone in the cast how much you care about this show and he's like i i that's what a, he's like that's such a rare thing to feel so because we love everyone in the cast and we love the show and we love doing it uh, and we love the audience too i think it it made that that big space feel that much smaller in a really good way in a really comforting way and i think in a kind way so it changed but fundamentally like we're all just a bunch of like fun dumb idiots singing songs and <laughs> and uh but with heart but gosh darn it with heart so that doesn't that never changes doesn't matter how much money you have how big the space is like that that's you can't quantify that where would you like to see the show go from here never to montreal <laughs> i would i would like i would like to see like more more uh, collective work being done on the script i would like to um i'd like everyone to like be able to get together and like and really continue building it like this is just the second iteration of it and i think it will continue to grow um as as a piece of art i mean i would love to see it tour i would love to see it go to vancouver and make its way across the country because it's such a it's a canadian play it's so important however i do think like for a quebec audience um it needs to be in french it needs to have a francophone cast there's um uh one woman who tweeted about the show and she said like you know it was fun but like i was really disappointed by the lack of uh quebecois representation i mean like uh shana silverbeards has some quebecois family but uh, like, yeah, there was not no like um, francophones or like uh, people who learn French first as their first language in it. Uh, the uh, most of us who created it, not that's not from a Quebecois culture, and we're using this myth that is that is so important to uh, Quebec. Like I, I hadn't even heard about it until I started doing the show, and now I'm. Uh, and now I'm creating uh, like a musical about like a, a very dearly beloved Smith, and I had just heard about it. Like, okay, that's that's kind of problematic. So I'd be very curious to see like after the script gets worked uh, some more, see it translated into French, and then get like a bunch of like awesome uh, francophone Quebecois actors and musicians to do the show. And I think that would be the only way it could be done in, in Quebec. I think if you bring a bunch of Anglos to do it, I don't, like, the optics on that are bad. <laughs> like, there's there's a history of division between the Anglos and the Francos for, you know, a good reason. Um, but yeah, I would like to see it, I'd love to see it tour across Canada. I'd be very curious to see its reception in the States. Um, I, I think that would be interesting. But, you know, I think the humor will carry. Um, what I love about the show is that I generally hate a lot of musicals, and I love this one. And we got that response from a lot of people who saw it at Soul Pepper, um, where they were like, yeah, normally I stay far away, but I actually liked this one. And I think we did a really good job of bridging the world between musical theater, collective creation, and just like straight up comedy. And that is where the real joy comes from. That's where like people can like go and like sing along to a swearing song and they can like drink their whiskey as they're watching it. 
So yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that. Obviously, I, I'd love to get like a, hear a, a cast recording of it. And yeah, I'd, I'd also be curious to see it published and see what other people would do with it. Because we all created our characters. Um, it feels so, so personal. And also, like for me, for my role, as was last year, like half the stuff that I did at Soul Pepper was like improvised, and I never wrote it down because I'm lazy. Because <laughs> I'm because I'm a lazy letwin. Um, so like, how would someone else like look at the script of what I did, and like maybe during rewrites, I can like figure out like some one-liners I put out there. But part of the joy of that character for me and the charm is like these little sides I can make to people. That's that's that tempers like kind of like the rough and tumble aspect. It's like, like if Peter Venkman from Ghostbusters was just like more of an alcoholic <laughs> and more of a bruiser, but it's that sardonic sort of personality, but you still like kind of root for them because it's like, ah, you're a charming son of a bitch. <laughs> and it's like, do we put like in the script, like when, when Mike Cox and I uh, kiss for the first time, it's just our tongues. Like, do we, is that like a necessary direction in that? So yeah, I would be, I'd love to keep doing the show. Um, I'd love to do it every year, uh, every year until I die, um, uh, as from, from old age. Um, but I, I would love to see another group's take on it. I would be so very deeply curious um, to see, like, does it work with another group of people, like entirely new cast of characters. So yeah. And I guess a video game. I think we should make a video game out of it. <laughs> I think we should we should release it on like I don't know Steam. We should release it on Steam first. Shaft Gallery the video game, and then if, when it like eventually becomes huge, I don't know Xbox One if that's still around. <laughs> Maybe VR. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll get in touch with Ubisoft. See what they have to say. <laughs> you also did a very serious play at the Fringe this year. Oh, it was honestly. Some people say death of a salesman is the platonic ideal of a show about shattered dreams and heartbreak and what it means to strive for something and ultimately fail in the process. But nay, I say to that, nay, twas dance animal all along. <laughs> that was the real peek into the heart of darkness that lurks within man. So, tell us about Dance Raccoon and what she meant to you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, Dance Raccoon is probably the most important role I will ever play. I will never... Like, I could play Evita. Nah. Like, whatevs. I could I could play um, Hamlet, and people would say, but it's no Dance Raccoon. No, it's just, it's just not. Hell, even if I was in a bodysuit for Hamlet, it's only halfway there, you know? Um... <laughs> I love Dance Raccoon uh, so much. When I auditioned for Dance Animal, um, so the process was like writing a monologue, uh, performing that, and then also um, uh, having a, a, a dance uh, call as well. So originally, I auditioned as Dance Bull, and it was fun. I really liked the monologue I had for it, but then when we got cast, we got together, and we were talking about like what animals we wanted to be. I'm like, this is a Toronto show. There has to be a raccoon. Like, you can't do a dance show about Toronto and have none of us be a trash panda. Like, <laughs> come on. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, that's like... Uh, nah, that's nah, gone. Anyway, it would be ridiculous. Um, but what I liked 
particularly about Dance Raccoon is that like I I love playing just a real piece of shit on stage. Like I love being gross. I love being like ballsy. Um, and there's something about raccoons too where they're very they're very intelligent and they're really adorable, but they're vicious and disgusting. <laughs> and I'm like, once again, I Mickey Rooney'd myself and I was like, oh, I could play that. <laughs> So I love the freedom of that. Like this, like I, it means I got to have like a bit of this swagger, but also just be just the worst. I was also very excited because it meant it was totally in character for me to be able to eat a piece of beef jerky during a dance show. <laughs> and again, like something I didn't know, I didn't realize I had always wanted to do that until I was doing that. And it was like dramaturgically, this is important for me. Um, it was it was fun. It was great to play. Uh, and like, you know, it's, it's very much a part of who I am. Like Dance Raccoon was an outlet for, for a, a part of myself, this sort of like kind of cynical, sarcastic person, also, also kind of gross, but ultimately someone who like likes being with other people. Like I may, I may be a bit of a sassafras, like I may, uh, I may be a little bit of a piece of shit, but at the end of the day... I like finding acceptance and I like being around, uh, you know, positive people. And I like, and I like dancing. I like dancing just a whole bunch. So yeah, it was like, it was cool. Uh, and, and important. And it was tough to like, you know, uh, we had to narrow down our monologues to be as short as possible. So we didn't go over time, but I got a chance to explore dance raccoon actually a bit more with an improv show I did. So Maddox Campbell at, uh, the social capital theater runs a show called perfect match where improvisers uh, choose a character, normally they're characters from like pop culture or what have you. Like last time I did it, I was Benton Frazier from Due South, um, playing against Simon McCamus, who was Jon Snow from Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh God, dream, dream right there. But uh, yeah, he's like, oh, what I want are characters from fringe shows to come. You do your monologue, and then you have an, Im- in- an improv uh, show. You-, you improvise against someone else. And in doing that improv show, I suddenly just like found all these other parts of Dance Raccoon that um, I, I hadn't had the, the uh, I guess, uh, space to explore at that point. Because, you know, we're, we're working hard, we're learning all the dances, uh, all the choreography, hence, uh, like, that is necessary. And we're trying to get on point with that. And then we do have our monologues, but that's one specific bit. So to really be able to, like, let go and like really talk in this character and find find a physicality in it that I hadn't necessarily been exploring before it was really exciting. Yeah, I I love dance raccoon. I just love being a, a funny grosso. It's 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 my bag. Yeah. <laughs> and earlier you mentioned something that you do every month called Sing for Your Supper. Yes. And yesterday there was a big announcement that the storefront, which is the home of Sing for Your Supper, is closing. Yes. What can you tell us about that and maybe the future of the series? Okay. Well, first and foremost, Sing for Your Supper is definitely continuing. We've we've that is not an option for it to stop. Um, we all agree that it is a hugely important part of uh, not only the theater community, but the building of said comedi- uh, uh, theater community. You know, as a, as a comedian, you can go and do like an open mic set or you can go do a jam. Actors and writers don't necessarily have that opportunity. So it's such a great way to give space to people who are like 
maybe stepping foot in um, into acting for the first time, or they used to do it a bunch and they don't anymore, but they still miss being on stage. Or for writers who are like finding their voice and trying some stuff out, and there aren't that many venues, especially for writers, to do that. Where it, it feels like either it's all or nothing. It's either you write a full show, uh, you produce it, it gets staged, and then that's it. There's there's so little chance for like dramaturgical script development if you don't already have that kind of crew of people. So we want to keep that going, and also just like we like the people who come a whole bunch. Like I've met a lot of great friends. Um, I've discovered new writers and amazing actors. Like. And I know of like sometimes producers come by and be like, "That's a neat person. I'm gonna get like take a chance on them." Or I saw them do this one thing. I thought maybe that was their only hit, but now I just watched them play this one part, and I never expected it. Now I'm gonna consider them for maybe a role that that they wouldn't normally get. Um, you know, uh, Natalie Frege is is actually a great example of this. She was uh, she started by submitting stuff to Sing for Your Supper, then joined the Playwrights Union at Storefront, and now Storefront is continuing on with their production of her play Divine, which is like really really wonderful. So that's what we plan. That's what we like. That's what we want to continue to do. So um, you know, we we it was Scott's last show, um, and we we sent him off in style, and it was tough because that was when we also announced the closure of Storefront. So it was very bittersweet all around, but. Um, Cameron Wiley and I are just like, yep, yeah, no, we're going to continue on with this. And actually, immediately, Bad Dog Theater reached out to us. Um, I, yeah, I got an email the day after the press release went out, officially announcing Storefront's closure. And she, she and uh, uh, Lisa, who uh, helped run the space, along with a bunch of other great improvisers, um, basically said, like, look, um, we're sorry to hear about what happens. Like, we know how this goes, because they used to have a venue on Danforth, and they got kicked out because the lease was too high. It was the Diesel Playhouse. Mm. And then they were peripatetic for a while and then landed on their space on, currently on Bloor West near Comedy Bar. And, yeah, Julie said, like, look, if you want space, we, we can help you out with space, especially for Sing for Your Supper, because, like, we're usually dark on Monday, so we can maybe work something out. So we're in the process of working that out right now. Um, and then it was just immediately like, oh yeah, oh that would that would be perfect. That would be so nice. We did uh, do Sing for Your Supper once at Bad Dog before, and it went really well. Um, so it, it was nice to immediately feel the love of that community to reach out and say like, we're here for you. We've got your back. We think what you do is important too, and we'd like to be a part of it. And that's why I I know for a fact like wherever we bounce around and end up. Sing for Your Supper is going to continue on. To feel the, the help and the love that that I and like everyone at Storefront has been receiving from all corners of the community, how can we as artists stop helping to develop that community uh, when we're in trouble? Like That just doesn't make any sense. So absolutely, it's going to go up. So first Monday, every month. So it doesn't even matter when this interview is posted. <laughs> first Monday of every month. Come on out. We'd love to see your 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 beautiful faces. Um, and it will remain free in order to keep it accessible. So we know that. And everything else is gonna, we're gonna plan and we're gonna work it out. So yeah. And do you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I would like to add, uh, thanks for organizing this and thank you for your hard work. And Thank you for creating not only a um, you know a, a, a website where 
we get uh, another important uh, a set of like critical voices uh, to interact with in the Toronto theater community. But um, thanks for putting on the awards and uh, giving recognition to a lot of people. Like they are so much fun. And you, as an artist, like you just, you feel really good. You feel very special. And, and you know, uh, when you go to the awards, uh, the, the love in the room is extremely palpable. So um, yeah, I guess uh, everyone, Donate to their uh, Patreon uh, so they can keep going, okay? Um, Could you do that? I haven't yet. I'm going to. Um, So, uh, because I'm not a hypocrite. I am not. That's, yeah, I think that's a good soundbite. (laughs) That's patreon.com slash myentworld, in case anyone's wondering. (laughs) 